Hello, and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. In this episode, Caroline Green talks to me about The Windsor Knot, changing direction as a writer and writing a high-concept novel. Caroline was a YA writer like me before she became a best-selling crime novelist with books such as In a Cottage in a Wood, The Woman Next Door and The Killer Inside. We started teaching at City Uni together and she was the first person I interviewed for season one of this podcast, where she talked brilliantly about the art of plotting. She was also the first person I talked to outside the family when I got the US deal for Her Majesty the Queen Investigates, of which Windsor Knot is book one. As you'll hear, that was quite a day. I was so grateful to Caroline for doing this with me. It felt odd to talk about my own experience, but I thought it might be an interesting insight into the publishing world for new writers and a reassuring one for those who've been around the block a bit. There is hope. There is always hope. There was also an unfolding pandemic, and that made a bizarre experience even more surreal. I think I'm still recovering. We recorded this episode in November 2020. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the pre-published podcast. Um, I'm, we're turning the tables today um, a little bit here because um, just over a, about a year ago, I think it was, um, the wonderful Sophia Bennett interviewed me, Caroline Green, and today I am interviewing Sophia about her amazing bestseller, The Winds Are Not. Welcome, Sophia, to your baby, the podcast. Thank you for having me, Caroline. <laughs> um, you're very welcome. Um, I'm trying to think. I think we actually it was sort of summertime, I think, 2019. And I'm just trying to think. I am going to want to take you right back. Okay. But I'm just wondering where you were at with your writing, at where things were at at that point last year, because quite a lot has happened in that time. So where do you think you were at sort of summertime I think August okay. 2019. My husband had just come out of intensive care. Um, I had just it, been teaching um, a, an intensive course at City, where where we both were teaching at the time, um, in the hottest week of the year. So that that was spent just circulating around, trying to find cool rooms, and hoping my husband was okay. And I was somehow, and I still don't know how, um, writing the middle section of The Winds Are Not. Yeah, I hadn't got to the denouement yet, but I, I was kind of heading there. So, yeah, that was an interesting wow. summer. Gosh, I can imagine it really was. And at that point, did you feel that it had legs? Did you have a kind of any kind of gut feeling about it? By then... I did, yes. Ah. So I'd had the idea over a year before that. And from the second I had the idea, I knew that it could be a goer, but it could also be absolutely terrible if it wasn't done really well. Um, so by the summer of 2019, I'd found the voice, that took a long time, and um, I'd written another book, which I sort of wrote in, in between, and... Yeah, it was it was motoring along and I knew that I I wanted to find an agent. Actually thinking back, my my original plan had been write 10,000 words of it and submit those to an agent and say I've got this track record. I've already written 10 books. Here are 10,000 words. What do you think? 
But I'd, I think I'd already decided by then that that wasn't going to be good enough because I was writing in a whole new genre. And I absolutely mm. needed to prove to myself, regardless of any agent, that I could write a crime novel that, that works. So I decided by then I really did have to write to the end. And I wouldn't know until I'd written the denouement because it is a kind of Poirot-esque denouement, as you know. I mean, not, not that everybody's gathered together in a room, but there is a kind of this is how yeah. it was done. Um, and I knew it was going to be extremely complicated the way that I planned the book. So that was ahead of me. I think I wrote that in September. So, yeah, I was hoping it would all work out. I was hoping it would be good enough to send as a complete thing to an agent. And I was lining up in my mind agents that I might like to send it to. Yeah. Right, right. Well, I'm going to circle back to that because I'd like at this point to go all the way back to the beginning. And I know that you had an unusual start in publishing with Threads, your first published book, in that you got a book deal after winning the Times Chicken House competition. And I was wondering, at the very beginning, did you actually go through that whole slush pile agent hunting experience? I did. I I was way too scared to write fiction at all for many years, um, even though it's what I really wanted to do. I, I, I got a job with the um, working with the European community because I thought, well, I'll do it through journalism and I'll do that through getting a job in sort of related to politics. So I'd done that and I'd been a management consultant and I'd done all sorts of things. And I was earning a decent wage and still thinking, God, I really need to just try this writing luck. And Harry Potter came out and I just loved it so much. I was one of the hordes of people in the late 90s who thought, OK, J.K. Rowling can Me do too. it. I can give it a go. <laughs> um, so that's when it began. And I wrote a detective story and it was called The Body of a Dancer. And it took me five weeks and I thought, blimey, this is quite easy. And it was very much modelled on Rex Stout, who's an American author who wrote the Nero Wolf series, which I adored, sort of set in New York in the 50s, I think. And um, I loved it. And my my mother showed it to P.D. James's editor and she loved it. And I thought, well, that's it. That's me done. Um, and so I sent it to publishers. And remarkably, given the fact it had no edits at all, um, nobody took it. So I wrote another one and nobody took that. And I went back to work and I wrote another one and nobody took that. And I went back to work and I wrote another one. Nobody took that. And I wrote a screenplay oh. and nobody took that. And that was the next 10 years of my life. And then How I many books threats. was that? So it was, it was kind of four. Um, I was talking to oh, somebody wow. for the podcast recently and, and they were quite, I think it was Emma Darwin, and quite rightly saying that it's hard to tell because you do, well, I did anyway, and she did. You kind of take take ideas and chunks from one unpublished book and put them into another. Um, so there was a bit of that going on, but it was at least four, yeah. And yeah, but they were all detective stories. And then, and then I had the courage to write a children's book, which I had kind of always wanted to do. Um, and that was the one that ended up being Threads. Now, I think it's always very interesting for people who are, you know, in that position of that long slog of trying to get noticed and get picked off the, the slush pile to hear a little bit about the sort of the psychology of that period for you. Because um, I know I had a similar journey to yours yeah. and I can remember just I remember after one particularly bitter disappointment with an editor, I remember crying in the bath <laughs> and thinking it's never going to happen. It's so hard, and I think. It's so hard. And I think often there is a sort of really terrible dark night of the soul quite often before 
something happens before you're when you're nearly there and I wondered how did you cope with all that did, did you take it in your stride or did it did it break you a little <laughs> bit like <laughs> um it was a lot going on in my private life at the time so that that took up a lot of my my mental energy um do you know what I I was because we're um season two as we're recording this season two is about to come out of pre-published and and I today is the day I, I'm talking about um Candy Gourlay's episode um and I was so glad to talk to her for season one because it was Candy that kept me going so I had no ah. real life friends who were doing this I just didn't know anybody who who did and you know it was in the days before social media um bizarrely or you know before it was big so it was really hard to reach out and find people it's so much easier now um but I did find notes from the slush pile and and that just sang to me as a title because slush pile was my thing that's where I was sitting and Mm. and Candy was in the same position and writing about it very generously and very honestly and bringing other writers in as well. So Candy gave me my community and, and kept me vaguely sane. Because I think part of that is just knowing you're not alone. And yes, yeah. And Candy made me feel that very much. Um, so yeah, it was tough. I, I always felt, you know, when people sort of say, oh, what do you do or what are you doing? And I could never say I write because I didn't have anything to show for it. Um, and that was really, it's a really hard identity crisis for 10 years, definitely. Yeah, I, I really think it is. And I think you've got every right to call yourself a writer if you're writing, yeah, frankly. I think so <laughs> if you're working hard at it, you're working hard in that way. So in the end, you wrote nine YA books, I believe. Uh, ten. Ten. Ah, because I, th- ah, I thought your 10th book was the art book. It is, but it's wrote. also sort of technically YA in that it's aimed at the same ah, okay. age group. It's an illustrated book. I mean, beautifully illustrated by Manjeet Thap, and I'm, I'm really lucky to have that. But it's one of those rare, large format illustrated books for teenagers, which in itself I'm really pleased about. Ah, OK. So that was the most recent one. Yes. So w- can you talk a little bit about what it was that that prompted the move away from writing for young people into adult fiction and and how that felt, how that process felt for you? It was a mixture of things. Um, the YA market in the UK is, to say the least, and you know this too, not very buoyant. Mm. It's really important. Yeah. And if somebody wants to write for teenagers, I would say, please do, because they need lots of books written for them. And they need lots of books by contemporary writers written for them so that it's not all golden age fiction that's put in front of them. Um, so it's it's great from that point of view, but it doesn't pay very well, <laughs> if at all. Yeah. And, and mm. I was... I mean, when Threads came out and I won the Times competition and Chicken House put a huge marketing campaign behind it, it was wonderful. I just didn't have a bad word to say about the publishing industry, my experience, anything. I was, you know, I was Pollyanna. It was all fabulous. And then it got tougher and tougher with each subsequent book. And I began to realise that there is this dangerous thing where booksellers look at your previous sales before they decide how many of your new book to order. And if that's not good, then getting out of the death spiral is increasingly difficult. Um, it's just, just yeah. a fact of life. It can be done. Some people do it. Um, but, but lots of us kind of change our names, change our genre, whatever. So I was aware of that brutal fact that even if I wrote a really, really good YA novel, it would be very hard for people to market it for me. 
And also, mm. I had written about all the subjects that I really wanted to write about, which is very much in the creative sphere. So I'd written about fine art. I'd written about music and and bands. I'd written about bullying, which was a really important theme I wanted to, to sort of discuss. I'd written about fashion, which was my my big passion when what sort of costume and things, making things when I was when I was little. So I didn't have any amazing ideas. There was a book I sort of thought I, I wanted to write called Bad Princess, um, which would be uh, set in a sort of chalet school, um, Mallory Towers kind of environment, but for princesses where it, it's the one who breaks all the rules, who's who's the goodie. <laughs> but I could never quite yeah. make that work. Anyway, so literally for years, I was wondering, well, what can I do um, to step out of this? And um, And I decided that... Of, of the many thoughts that I had, one one was to go back to writing crime novels because that's what I read when I was um, kind of in my late teens, early 20s. My mother is a passionate crime reader, so the house is always still is full of crime novels of all descriptions. Um, and, and I really grew up with Dorothy L. Sayers. Um, so it felt natural to sort of go back to that. And and <laughs> mutual friend of ours, Ruth, who I'm also... Uh, talking to for, for this season in fact tomorrow um she had done it and uh and it was going quite well for her and then you did it and it was going quite well for you <laughs> um so the lot of us doing it yeah I, I I never consciously thought well I will copy them but I did have that reassurance that this is a thing that can be done so I think mm. that did help me a bit in in kind of stepping do you across. think though I'm I'm really convinced that there's there's something about the fact that so many of us wrote YA and we when you're writing YA books and any books for young people, you know, plot is king and queen. You you just have they have to be pacey. Yeah. Because teenagers have got too many pressures on their time. They're not going to stick around for us, for books that are 700 pages of description and nothing else happening. And I I'm really convinced that the fact that we learnt our sort of trade yeah. by writing for younger people is why we've been able to make this move into plot driven fiction do you what do you think I think that's really insightful Caroline yeah you're right it comes I was going to say it comes so naturally to me as in I'm so it's sort of in inside it that is how I like to write so it, as what I mean is it wouldn't have occurred to me to write a very long introspective novel even though I adore them and I read a lot of those too um, at uni and that kind of thing I I've always wanted to write comfort books I think um, so the books that really got me through tough times were Jackie Collins and and Jilly Cooper and Len Dayton and Alistair MacLean and I remember talking to this about this to my husband when we were dating <laughs> you know we both both loved those kind of fast-paced books John le Carre um mm. So maybe that's why I enjoyed writing the, the paciness of YA and, and it felt natural to me to do it. But yeah, you're right. There is there is that kind of link between the two, definitely. Yeah, it does seem to be the case for so many people. So you said before that you had been looking for something commercial and hooky. Yeah. Um, and so was that always going to be crime? I mean, could it have been a, um, a high concept romance, for example? at that point when you were yeah. you know, casting around well if if i'd had that idea um then it could have been um 
I mean, I'm very, very, very lucky that I won the Romantic Novel of the Year with Love Song in 2017. And gosh, the the romantic novelists are a really lovely bunch of people and I would very happily hang out with them. Um, So if I'd had that idea, I would have gone with it. But going back to, you know, the, the books that I grew up on, there were, despite sort of the Jilly Cooper thing um, and, and books like Octavia and Harriet and all of those, it was actually more crime that I was reading. So it, it did feel more natural to me and make more sense to me to go back to that. And as I say, they were the first ones that I tried to write. Um, so I think there was always a part of me that that wanted to create those puzzles and then solve them in the writing process. Yeah, yeah. So I want to hear every detail of this. So can you describe, <laughs> is, is there a particular moment when inspiration first struck you for this for this series I mean I don't think I mean I'm I'm sure that everybody listening to to this knows what's going on with with your world at the moment but just in case you anybody out there doesn't know the Windsor Knot is the first in a series so far I think you've got five lined up am I right yes yes amazing um where basically the queen is the detective with the help of her amazing assistant rosie um so it's an incredibly high concept idea um i i'm also writing a high concept thing and i'm interested in this whole concept of dare i and i just wonder (laughs) how that how that works with you and was there a particular moment when this idea came to you there was I had decided what I was going to do with this, you know, everything that I've been talking about in my new thing. And it was going to be a detective series with a billionaire secretly cyborg art detective. So it is not <laughs> known that he is a cyborg, uh, but he is. And wow. <laughs> I had started to write the series and it was all a, sort of set in the fine art world. But I did have the problem, as I say, you know, 11th book, trying to break out of the of the sales death spiral, all of that. Teaching writing, teaching the elevator pitch, having been in moments where somebody has said, what are you writing now? Somebody influential. And I have realised with my heart and my mouth suddenly that if I said the right thing now, I could change my life. You know, I I, I could make this person really excited, um, but I don't <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, and I'd realised that actually billionaire cyborg art detective made people quizzical, but it didn't make people go, oh, my God, I've got to read that. So I wasn't convinced that it was the perfect thing. But anyway, I was driving up to a writing retreat and I think it was April 2018 to write this bloody thing that I couldn't write very well and and I hadn't got the voice and it wasn't really going along and I'd been trying for a while and I was thinking about season two of The Crown and I'd really enjoyed seasons one and two but there was a particular scene where the Queen did something that I just thought was out of character so she picked up a model soldier on a battlefield and she put it back in the wrong place and I just thought well my father has met the Queen a few times because um, he was in the army for decades and he was in the Gurkhas and she's very, very fond of the Gurkhas. And in the course of meeting her, he he has said that she's hugely knowledgeable about military history and she cares very much about it. And I just thought she would not have fiddled with somebody else's model battlefield because it's a bit rude. And also mm-hmm. she wouldn't have put the soldier back in the wrong place. Right. And that just got me, I mean, I didn't blame the crown for doing it that way because it was kind of a funny scene, but it got me thinking, I really feel that I know this woman beyond the one that I see in the crown, which also kind of presents her more than most people know her. But I've been following her since 1977 when a book came out about her clothes. And like I say, I'm 
really fascinated by costume. So that really connected with me. It was all about how Norman Hartnell designed clothes for her. And I, I've been following her closely since then. So anyway, I was thinking about how everyone's always looking at her and she's looking out. So she must see things that other people don't see and how I, I think she can be really underestimated because, you know, we, we're in the literary world and, and it's known that she's she doesn't sort of talk about the amazing novels that she's read on a regular basis. So she can be thought of as not intellectual. But one thing the Crown was kind of bringing out is on the stuff that people educated her on, like constitutional history, she's really, really good. Um, so that interested me. And I just had this thought, my God, if something happened at Buckingham Palace, for example, um, that was out of place, A, she would notice, um, perhaps when other people wouldn't, and, and B, she would be able to do something about it because she's got access to all the experts that she might want to talk to. And, and at that moment, I thought, blimey, wouldn't she make a brilliant detective? And I was driving along and I remember it just so vividly. And I, and I got to the place I was going to and I sat down to write about my cyborg art detective. And I, I just kept on just looking up from my laptop and thinking, but I could set a book at Balmoral and I could set another one at Windsor Castle and I could do one on the Royal Yacht Britannia and I could do one set in the 50s and she could go to the Paris Embassy and I could do one in Hong Kong where my mother met her. And yeah, it just, uh, yeah, it, it just took over really. And what was happening in your body when when you when this happened in the car? Did you, did you did you get a sort of heart rate speeding up and all that kind of thing? A little bit, massive, massive grin, <laughs> massive grin. Um, yes, but at the same time, I mean, I noticed when I first had the idea, I thought done by somebody, this could just be tremendous. But I wasn't sure that the somebody was me. Um, and and yeah, and it took months and months. In fact, it kind of took a year for me to have the courage for that person to be me. I think there's something definitely in that there's a feeling if you if you do come up with a you know a very original idea there's a feeling of responsibility isn't there that you that you will you'll do it justice massive yes really that has been the most wonderful thing about the good reviews that I've had so far I mean I've had that haven't all been great but many of them have and and I many have said that I did do it justice and that is my favorite favorite thing because that was my biggest fear um and in fact even with the bad reviews everybody said that I've got the queen um spot on which I'm utterly thrilled about utterly thrilled about yeah well that that leads very neatly into the thing I wanted to ask you about next actually which is how you said it took you about a year so how did you how did you go about getting that voice tell me about the the writing process that led you to to finding the voice that you felt was the right one I, you know, I went through a very similar experience to the one that I had trying to write threads for the first time, which was which was point of view is is often my biggest problem and, and can set me back months and months as I work out who is going to tell this story in whose head, if anybody's, am I going to be? How old is that person? Is it more than one person? Um how much do they know? Um, are, are they are they witty or are they um, terrified? You know, all of these kind of decisions that one makes as a writer. Is it a present tense thing? Am I really super inside their head or not? And and I played around with it, and and I realised very early on that the Queen needed to have a sidekick um, because in in all my favourite detective stories, Dorothy Sayers, Rex Stout, um, Agatha Christie, usually. Um, there is one and and so it's how much was it going to be from the sidekick's point of view and and usually I, I would start from the sidekick's point of view and I would try and go towards 
the Queen kind of thing, building up to it. Um, and then I wrote, and this is what happens to me actually with every book that I do. And then I wrote a scene which wasn't necessarily intended to be the, the opening scene, but it was the Queen on horseback looking at Windsor Castle, which is where I decided to set book one. And I was in her head and she was reflecting on what she'd do if there was a revolution. Um, and I just suddenly, I just was like a huge sigh of, oh, okay, I'm here now. And and I knew from sort of, from teaching writing and things, and particularly from having done a screenwriting course, um, start in the middle, you know, start start where the action <laughs> kind of starts. So um, I realised, of course, I the opening page needs to be what I, that, that feeling I had when I had the idea. I want the reader to, to, um, to get it really quickly. So I've got to be in the Queen's head and she's got to be the kind of person who you feel could solve a crime. Um, and I've got to get the setting in there really fast because the setting is going to be such a big feature in the book. Um, yeah. And then the rest of the voice and the rest of the character sort of came organically from me having thought about her for 40 years, whatever it is. Um, but I, I really needed that moment. So I scrapped everything I'd written up to that point and I, I just carried on from there. So, yes, I mean, I, I, I always say to students, as I'm sure you do, too, that experimentation with point of view is just absolutely crucial for nailing the voice. Yeah. And I once had to I had to rewrite 30,000 words um, from change from third person to first person before. And I've also gone the other way um, just because I couldn't quite couldn't quite feel it until I'd I'd gone through that process. So sometimes you just can't. There's no shortcut, really. But yeah, I, I, was say, I, th I think that's an important thing to say because one of the stories that 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 I love to to tell, but but it it's because it's rare is um is David Armand and Skellig, which is one of my favourite books of all time. And you know, Me and the too. voice came, and with the voice came the story, and page one came, and it, you know, as if it was it was that inspiration thing, you know, sort of breath inside him. But that's rare and much more normal, even with professional novelists. I think is as you say, try it that doesn't work, <laughs> try another thing, that doesn't work, spend months and months kind of fiddling about with it um, and until you get into your groove as a as a writer. But um, but that it, it is if if a student is doing that, that is so normal, they shouldn't worry that they're doing yeah. it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually wanted to ask something about that because I was fascinated to see that you you sort of you, you sort of play with point of view a little bit and you, you, you slightly head hop at the end of some chapters out of the prevailing point of view which is I think is quite a brave move because I find my, often find myself telling students to be very wary of any kind of omniscient POV like this but you do pull it off really well so tell me about that thank you um I did it's quite an unusual <laughs> it's an unusual approach I think I did feel brave and I'll tell you what it was the liberation of, of not writing YA anymore because I did feel as a YA writer that what really works is is to be very much inside one maybe maximum two heads and um often in 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 present tense and to to really um to live through that character's experience um and so I would really be kind of jealous if I'd be reading somebody else's book, often an adult novel or a, um, a golden age novel, where the point of view was kind of dotting around a bit. And I think, oh, lucky you, <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> so um, so I had fun playing with it. And I was, I was aware that I might be overdoing it. And I did pull back at times. But but I liked I like the opportunity that that I gave myself to to play around with it, and it is fun in detective fiction as well. Obviously, you can you can do a certain amount of sleight of hand by by jumping into somebody else's head and therefore not being in the head of somebody who's 
who is who knows something that you don't want the reader to know yet for example yeah um yeah. but also i mean my characters uh, real and fictional but particularly the real ones are such fun um you know how could i not go into prince philip's head a little bit perhaps and and see him looking at the queen um or uh, or the private secretary's head um who's a fictional character um it was yeah it was just it was too tempting so, so i did it <laughs> Um, so I want to hear now, if you've finished this book, you've, you've finally nailed the voice, you've written the whole thing, you've made the decision not to just send out 10,000 words. Tell me about the submission process uh, for this series and how, right from the very beginning. I I had lined up an agent that I wanted um, back in that summer, I think, or even slightly before. Um, and And so I was writing to the deadline of when she would be reading manuscripts because she went offline for a bit um and I can't remember exactly when it was but in the autumn so I think after I'd finished writing the denouement I also became very aware of LJ Ross and I, this was because she had been on Radio 4 I think and she'd made a very eloquent argument for the fact that she should be on official bestseller lists because she was selling millions of copies of her books Mm, Um, and she wasn't on them at the time because um, she was what they call an an indie author but a self-published author published through Amazon to start with and uh, she wasn't sort of captured by Nielsen and all of that kind of thing so she wasn't appearing on the bestseller charts and fascinatingly, um, they got uh, whoever it is who compiles the, the chart on Bookseller, I suppose, to say, well, what about it? And and I just thought, oh, good for you. That person said, well, you're right. <laughs> we should do something about this. And they found somebody in America who um, who could interpret the um, the Amazon rankings, I think, in such a way that they could uh, they could work out roughly what the sales were. And they, they thought that was good enough. And so suddenly LJ Ross was in the bestseller lists and... And it became obvious how legitimate it is these days to be um, a self-published author. And Mark Dawson runs courses and and a very supportive group um, of of writers um, sort of teaching each other how to do that. And, And I'd always said to students... Don't well. Don't try it in YA because it really doesn't work in YA. But um, also, don't try it if you are um, if you're not really sort of serious about the marketing side. But then I thought, well, it, it really works for crime. So actually, um, if I can't get an agent, then I'll self-publish. I'll take the Mark Dawson courses. I'll I'll do it with my husband as a, as a sort of professional thing, and. Um, and I'll really think about what I want to do. And I realised, well, it's got to be a long series because, um, you know, that's that's what the kind of reader I have in mind wants. You know, once they've read one, they want to <coughs> hoover up the next 10. And, and anyway, I want to write them. And um, I want them to be um, a, a sort of some set now and some set um, sort of going back in time. Um, and... I had the sort of the series title in mind and I was just really clear about how I wanted to do it. And that became really helpful. So so the agent that I that I pitched to instantly said no. <laughs> and I'm just with wow. with not a she's hint. kicking herself. Well, I, I, don't, I don't doubt she is. She's got some amazing clients um, without there a hint of irony. I would say I'm just grateful that she said it quickly because it meant I wasted absolutely no time waiting. I could get on with what I was doing. So I sent it to other agents. Um, and I did wait over the Christmas period. 
Um, and I was getting my sort of self-publishing um, thing together. I was going to do two books a year and I had all of that together. And then uh, lovely Annie Eaton, who's been on the podcast in season one, who's just amazing. Um, she said, oh, I know this this chap called um, Charlie Campbell and he's an agent and he's looking for clients and you should just see him. Um, so in the meantime, there was another agent who was interested, but I saw Charlie and with my husband and we just clicked. And I think because I'd had the self-publishing thought really seriously, um, I knew what I wanted and I could tell that that Charlie's vision for the book really um, coincided with that. Um, but on top, because the other thing that I thought was, I don't want to be a mid-list author anymore in the traditionally published world because it's just too depressing. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's kind of all or nothing. Um, and and I thought, well, and all is too much to ask for, you know, to be one of those those few big people who get the marketing budget and and get the slots in bookshops and and all of the things that that I I know a traditional book needs. I thought it was way too much to ask for. Um, but anyway, Charlie seemed to have the faith that actually, no, I could ask for those things. And and by the end of an hour with him, we decided, yeah, he's the one. And this was in the very last day of January and the London Book Fair was coming up in early March. <laughs> well, we thought it was. Um, <laughs> and this, yeah, this was in the days when you could still meet people face to face just. And in February, um, he, uh, working with um, ILA, who who also sell books, uh, who sell books to sort of um, international markets, um, we sold it to Italy and then he got me a five book deal, as we said, with Bonnier. And I, again, I've been really clear, I'm not selling it as a single book. I don't think it will work as a single book. I'm only selling it as a series. So you got me five book deal. And I thought, I love you, Charlie. I do love you, Charlie. <laughs> um, and, um, and then he working with um another agency called Fletcher and Co um he got it to America and then everything went mad as you know so we spoke I remember you rang me when you were just at the very beginning of this and I, I think I actually had a little cry I was, <laughs> <laughs> I, was I did I was so happy for oh, you God. I was quite emotional um and you were I don't remember you were um you were you were wondering whether you could justify buying a very expensive scarf <laughs> Do you remember? Uh, it was a very expensive shirt, and I did. Oh, was it a shirt? Yes, right. And I, I think very of glad you, you whenever I wear it, and yes, <laughs> you said go for it, and I'm glad I did. I'm very glad. You must always think of that, think of that day, and the, and the, the, it was all so new, and never become jaded oh, with it. So I remember every are you step able to... of that day, literally every step that I took. Yeah. Are you able to talk a little bit? Because unfortunately, like many others, I've never never had any kind of auction or anything like that going on. Can you just talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah. I know you're not going to want to give specific <laughs> figures, but if you could just give us a kind of an idea of of what what the process is like, how that how that oh, the madness. unfolds. Well, it had it had gone. So I'd, I'd struck a deal with Mondadori in in Italy by then. I think they'd asked for exclusive rights, and that had got people excited in itself. So thank you, Mondadori. Um, and France was thinking about it. There was a potential auction going on there. I wasn't sure. Same thing in Germany. And then, yeah, and then suddenly there were six editors in America who were interested. And um, I sat exactly where I'm sitting now at the top of the house in my elder son's room. And he'd gone off to uni. So like many people do, I was sort of colonising his room. By now, we 
Oh, were we in lockdown? We were either in it or... No, we weren't quite in it. That's right. It was it was kind of heading towards us. It was February. Um, and I sat, I sat here and I spoke for six hours almost solidly, I think. Or maybe it was over two days um, with these editors lined up and they were in New York and they were really famous publishing houses and... The quality of the conversations we had, Caroline, I just can't tell you. It was just, it was such an amazing moment. These people had read my book, understood it in in tremendous depth, what I was trying to do. And they'd understood the feminism that I was trying to put there with, with the queen working with a with a female assistant um, and, and sidekick. And, and they loved the fact that Rosie was black. And they, they loved the way the, plotting was done and they could talk about particular scenes particularly rosy scenes that they enjoyed and and I was just in this weird um uh, um experience where where they were selling to me you know they were saying here's what I think we can do with your book and I, I was thinking yeah do that I'm I'm sold this is amazing <laughs> and then after those conversations it went up and then it went up and then it went up again from there to just and did it just, just ridiculous amounts of money and presumably it, there must have been a, a, a feeling of unreality about all this, was it? Oh, God, yes. I mean, how did you... <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. You must have just been spinning. I mean, particularly because it's what we all dream of, isn't it? I mean, yeah, and, and yeah. the thing we all dream of, it never happens to you, obviously, the thing that you dream of. Um, <laughs> and yes, uh, and I I had always sort of assumed that if, if, you, if you are that lucky, there, there has to be something bad about it you know that you end up with a an editor that you don't like you had to pay the price in some way but that kind of didn't happen everybody was was really not only amazingly kind of ballsy in the way that they did the auction but also lovely I ended up going with David Highfill at William Morrow who publishes just a whole range of people and I, I think he did publish edit Elmore Leonard back in the day which is just blows my mind um and they pub published the Christie estate which does help I think um yes. and David is a delight to work with as as is Ben Willis who is my UK editor at Zaffer at Bonnier um and yeah it was it was extra weird because um just as that was happening so maybe that was early March because just as that was happening lockdown was starting to become a serious thing and I think it was like the next day I'd booked to go to do a little a mini writing retreat with Siobhan Curran down in Lewis near Brighton and and I'm so glad I I did that because it that helped center me a little bit I was writing book two by now mm. so it was lovely to do something just practical and, and writing-ish again um but I was yeah. I was kind of worried though because you know, my husband had been in intensive care quite recently and, and I'd had, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been treated for, for, for cancer and um, and suddenly the, the streets were potentially full of people with what seemed at the time to be a sort of very fatal disease um, and the hospitals didn't know how to deal with it. Um, so it was, it was kind of 50-50 as to whether I would go at all. So it was like, am I killing myself by wandering around the streets? Oh my God, <laughs> I've just accepted a, a genuinely life-changing amount of money for for three books. I know what I'm doing for the next three or four years of my life. Um, but, you know, are we going to live long enough to, to sort of tell the tale? It was Gosh. utterly Gosh. surreal. 
Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, that as you were talking about the, the worrying was something going to come along and change it. You, I think you had quite a lot to deal with <laughs> at the same time. Golly. Um. So I want to talk a little bit before we get to the end. There's a few more things I want to ask. But you mentioned Rosie, yeah. the, um, uh, the the Nigerian aide to the Queen, who um, I loved Rosie. I thought she was such a wonderful character. But how concerned were you or how mindful were you about any possible criticism of writing from closely in the point of view of a character from a very different culture to your own? Because that can be quite a sensitive topic um, in fiction. I wondered how you how you approached that and how you thought about it. I was really sensitive to it. Um, So I I decided really early on in the whole idea of it that Rosie shouldn't be a posh white English girl. Um, She has a job that I did interview for in 1995 um, and really, really wanted. Um, And and some aspects of her are based on me. So there's a lot of autobiography in her, but she's she's not me. Um, She is this really cool um, ex-army officer, ex-banker of um, Nigerian heritage. And I wanted her to come from a Commonwealth country. And it was largely because I live in London, um, where I live in Tooting. I am surrounded by people of colour. And um, a third of my students on average when I when I teach writing are people of colour. And, you know, that's my world. That's just contemporary London. And I wanted this book yeah. to exude contemporary London. And I noticed, and I think it was at Harry and Meghan's wedding, that um, one of the um, the staff at Windsor Castle in their, their sort of amazing navy blue uniforms was um, a black woman standing very proudly uh, watching people go by. And I thought, to me, you know, the Queen doesn't do anything by accident. Um, to me, that was a message that, of, you know, saying that they hire diversely. I certainly hope that they do. Um, and actually, the Queen's current equerry, who travels around with her, including now in lockdown, um, is of Ghanaian heritage. Although I think he's Ghanaian royalty, so it's slightly different. Um <laughs> So, yeah, so I, I knew that that's what I wanted. And I knew exactly, as you say, that I could, that was another thing that I could do wrong. And so I did the best I could with Rosie. And um, and I sent the opening chapters to um, an ex-student of mine who is of Nigerian heritage. And we had such long talks, actually, about her name, her background, her religion, her hair, um, her, what her grandparents would have done, whether she was, whether they came over um, as as lower class Nigerians or upper class Nigerians, because she said that that was completely different as to what happened to you afterwards. Um, and they were lower class Nigerians, and um, they would have had the lowest of the low jobs. So Rosie's grandfather washed bodies in the morgue when he first came to London, and you know, Fran said that's that's yeah. the kind of jobs that that were open to them, not much more. Um, and so I, I did all of that. And then I sent, sent the opening chapters off to Fran and she said, Ugh, you, you have, there's nothing in there that makes me really feel that she genuinely is from this background. Um, why doesn't she eat plantain chips? Why doesn't she feel cold having come back from Lagos? Why isn't she shivering in her coat? Um, she would use shea butter on, on her skin. And she just gave me all these little things that Rosie would would have and would think and would do. Um, I'm, 
So I just put them in. <laughs> I just thought, thank you, Fran. I will do all of those things. She would have a key ring from the wedding that she'd just been to um, with a picture of the bride and groom in it. Um, oh, I loved that. I, yeah. I loved all those details too. And the more of those I, I put in, the more I felt, yes, I, I do feel this girl is is kind of growing and, and filling out. Um, so she, there's a certain amount of wish fulfillment for me. There's a fight scene that she does pretty well in, and that's wish fulfillment for me. Her, her race is not an issue in the book at all, and I, I was very serious about that. Um, but but yeah, you're quite right. You know, she has a different set of um, of experiences to draw on from the other people, and and I wanted that to be be reflected. And I I think nowadays. Um, it's such a wasted opportunity if, if you don't... I, don't know, I got another student, uh, again, of Nigerian heritage to, to read it for me as well. I think it's such a waste, wasted opportunity if you don't do that because it's so easy nowadays to reach out to, to people from the community or writing about the disabled community, the trans community, whatever it is, and say, yeah. what's, what's wrong about this? What don't you identify with? Um, and I think one should... Um, I mean, I know there's there's this sort of, you know, there's the huge own voices debate, which I'm always really interested in. And and I think that we should write what we want to write, but write it now. Now that we know that we can, we should write it with the acknowledgement of the experience of the people we're writing about. So I just don't think it's good enough anymore to imagine what they're thinking <laughs> um, all the time. Yeah, I think yeah. you just have to check. Is it is it this? You know, yeah. my, my husband is is disabled in some ways and um and and our experience is very much affected in some ways for the better some ways for the worse by that and yeah if somebody imagined what it would be like for us it would drive me up the wall without, without checking with me i think the fact that you did that that research and you got those little gems of details other thing is what separates it from being an annoying leap of imagination that's just not authentic i think the fact that you did that um, has made has made all the difference. And t- talking of of research, I'm I'm fascinated to to ask, sort of how you went about researching this very private world, really, in some ways. So things like the the structure of her day and so on. I was interested in. It, it just felt so believable. Yeah, to me I mean, that this is how. As far as I know, that's right. So I mean, Windsor Knot uh-huh. is set at at Windsor in kind of in her holidays. I mean, she still does her papers every day, practically except Christmas Day. Um, so she was, she had a lot of free time that I could play with, and that is partly why I I, I set my first book then. But I mean, if if the book says she's meeting Michael Gove and the Bishop of Leicester that day, she is because I used the court circular. Um, which is online now, bless its heart, from the Times. Oh, I so see, there is right. there is no yeah. official detail in the book that is not true. Um, if if it's you know the dine I made up that dine and sleep with those guests, but the week before she had had a real dine and sleep with a different set of guests. I just moved it by a week because it suited my plot purposes. Oh um, wow! And do they call it? Is that what they call they, it? Oh, isn't it a lovely thing? They call it a dine and sleep. Dine and sleep. She really does invite about twenty people to supper to a dinner party at the Windsor Castle, uh, and and she entertains them and um, and they get to sleep over. Um, and they have breakfast there the next day. And the one that I researched was Tim Peake and Delia Smith. Um, and it is mm-hmm. absolutely not at all impossible that you would have the Archbishop of Canterbury on one side of you and David Attenborough on the other. Um, I just, oh, wouldn't that be fantastic? <laughs> it would, it would. Amazing. Um, now, I want to finish off with, with quite a difficult question. Well, not it might not be a difficult question, but... Um, 
I wonder if there's any little element of you, um, this is a very personal question, I'm going to go in deep here, in the back of your mind at three o'clock in the morning that ever thinks, oh my God, five books and feels a terrible pressure of a series that long. Do you ever worry that you'll run out of ideas or you'll fall out of love with the concept of the characters? I mean, how do you think you'll be able to keep all that fresh for yourself as the writer? Well, Bonnier have contracted for five. Thank you, Ben. But I want to write 20. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> they've only contracted for a quarter of them. Do you know what? I should feel that, but I, I feel nothing but joy. Um, I found <sighs> writing... So I, Threads was a trilogy. It wasn't intended to be, but it was. And, and writing book two of Threads was my favourite thing because I had the world all set up and, and the plot just flowed out of me because I'd been thinking about the characters for such a long time. And then I made things really complicated for myself in book three. But ever after, with all the other books I then wrote, I wanted them to be part of a series as well because once I'd created the characters, I wanted to use them. Um, so I, I love reading and writing series fiction. Um, I know I just... The Queen's led such an extraordinary life and, you know, she's met everybody worth meeting in the 20th century um, and she's done it in all these fascinating places. And I can't bear the idea of not writing a book set on Britannia in Scotland and another one set on Britannia in the Pacific Ocean um, and another one, the Balmoral one that I'm going to be writing next year, uh, the Sandringham one I'm writing now. But also I want to do all of those again set in the 50s and I want to write the origin story in the 30s um, when her uncle is abdicating and she's discovering her her powers. Wow. Um, <laughs> so do you know what? It doesn't feel like pressure. Um, and it, bring it on I know yeah <laughs> exactly bring it on I mean I, I'm going to have to learn to be more of a historical novelist because it's you know that the first quartet are set uh, only four years ago so I can remember that quite well but setting them in the 50s I'm you know I'm going to have to learn how how one gets the 50s right but I love that actually I mean that's the thing I've learned over over 11 books is the research always terrifies me and then it's my favorite thing when I'm actually doing it I just love yeah. it it's a, it's a lovely world to live in. I, I've idealised it shamelessly because I'm writing in the tradition of golden age fiction. So it's it's a lovely, safe world on the whole um, where bad things happen and get fixed. And it's, it's a nice place to be mentally while the real world is not. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, your enthusiasm for the for the whole thing is just is is really lovely to hear. And I, I, genuinely, and I'm sure lots of the people that know you listening to this would say the same thing. When this happened for you, the number of times I said to people, "I cannot think of anybody who deserves this more." Oh, um, I think all your YA. X, XYA world and current friends are uh, absolutely thrilled for you and I um, I have to say as as you know we've talked about this I'm not a fan particularly of the royal family yep. I'm just not interested in them at all um, but I thought it was it was fab I really enjoyed it so if you're if you're not you don't have to be a massive royalist I think to enjoy this I think you just have to be somebody that enjoys good fiction and I uh, fully expect um, you to be invited to a dine and sleep within the next few years <laughs> especially after you sent a copy I believe to, the, to her Madge do you know what I suddenly <laughs> thought yesterday is maybe one day they'll stock the books in the palace shop and that, that would be enough for me I would be that would be, I'd be very very happy if they got that sort of level of imprimatur 
Well, thank you for, um, I've enjoyed having the tables turned and, and, and interviewing you and hearing all about this process in, in great detail. And I just want to wish you so much luck with it. Oh, thank you. I really loved <laughs> the episode that I did with you for season one about plotting. Was that the first one I recorded? I think it was. I think it was. Yeah. And I still look back on it with such fondness. And you taught me about midpoints and, and all sorts of really useful things. So I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. I hope there's a midpoint in the uh. not. I'm sure there is. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there is. <laughs> All right. Lovely. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Thank Take you, care. Caroline. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Prepublished. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at prepubpodcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com.